Welcome to Beyond the Surface. On our podcast, we highlight underrepresented voices in architecture. We'll humanize architects by uncovering who they are beyond the surface. Hi, I'm your host, Alex Sanchez, representing the Illinois Tech student chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects. Today's episode is called Designing Policies for Change with our guest, Maurice Cox. Maurice is a former commissioner of the Department of Planning and Development for the city of Chicago. He was responsible for leading the department while fostering community improvement initiatives such as Invest Southwest. Before coming to Chicago, Maurice was the City of Detroit's planning director. That followed his time as an associate dean for community engagement at Tulane University School of Architecture, where he was also the director for Tulane City Center in New Orleans. He is a former professor at Syracuse University, the University of Virginia, and Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. He served as mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia from 2002 to 2004, and he was the design director of the National Endowment of the Arts under President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama. Thank you for being here with us today. How are you feeling? Uh, Loving it. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking to the NOMAS audience. We are so happy to have you here today. So we'll get our conversation started. We'll start with one about your childhood. Mm. So could you tell us about growing up in Brooklyn and how that influenced your life? Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and I moved there when my family bought our home um, in Flatbush. And it was that kind of idyllic block where you had a mix of houses, a mix of apartments and single family and duplexes. You could walk to a grocery store. It really felt like a safe place. You can close off the street and people were playing kickball and the fire hydrants came out during the summer and people were turning them into spray fountains. You know, it was like a really a scene out of a kind of a loving community. And what was interesting is that over the course of the 22 years uh, that we lived there, I watched that part of the neighborhood decline. The stores started closing up. Demolition of things outside of my block started to happen. And it became a place that was seeing rapid decline. And I remember as a teenager wondering, like, why is this happening? And particularly because I went to a high school outside of my neighborhood. It was one of the magnet high schools for art and design. And it was in Midtown Manhattan. So since I was 14 years old, I was going back and forth on the L between my neighborhood and Midtown Manhattan. And the contrast could not have been more stark. And so every day, I don't think a day went by when I wasn't asking, why is the downtown like it is so vibrant and you know dynamic? And then I go to my neighborhood and it's scary and disinvested in. As a teenager, I said, oh, it's about the buildings. So we can do something about that because buildings can be rehabbed. And this is what an architect does. So I'm going to be an architect. And it's in that simple way that something catches your imagination when you're a young person. And then you pursue this dream not knowing a whole lot about it other than it seems like it has some answers. I've seen like where there's really, really nice neighborhoods and really, really bad neighborhoods. You can see it all around, even Chicago, mm-hmm. how one freeway can just part a neighborhood and it looks so different on each side. And wanting to be able to build your own neighborhood up and bring opportunities to neighborhoods that don't have as many opportunities, I feel like I can understand a bit more of who you are as a person. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that I think you forge your personality really early. So even as a teenager, some of these things were making an impression on me. And as I said, I didn't know that there were economic forces behind things. I didn't know anything about how neighborhoods are invested in or how they become disinvested. I just knew that a neighborhood that felt so nurturing was becoming scary and depressed. And I knew that there were healthier places because I frequented them every day. So I think the seed 
was planted that something about the health of communities has to do with neighborhoods. And that if I could just make neighborhoods healthy again, people can have more choices, they can pursue their dreams, and cities can be good places to grow up and raise families and live. So you talked about wanting to design, and you also went to school and high school for design. So what drew you more into design and architecture? Yeah, well, it's interesting, because I came to architecture from the kind of artistic, creative side. I really enjoy drawing, and I had a facility for the arts. And so when it was time to choose a high school, I wanted to go to an arts high school. And so I went to the High School of Art and Design on 57th Street and 2nd Avenue. And I really wanted to do figurative art. I thought I might want to do commercial art. And then there was an architecture class at my high school. And it was more like drafting, learning how to draft, and some history of 20th century. So by the time I ended high school, I knew who Corb was, who Frank Lloyd Wright was who uh, Louis Kahn was. And then everyone in the architecture school, there was a professor there who said, oh, you know, the best school of architecture is Cooper Union, which is also in Manhattan. And by the way, it's a scholarship school. So I and my friend decided that we were going to go visit Cooper Union. And we did. And they had a Saturday program where they invited high school students to sit and be instructed in architecture on Saturdays. So it was during the year. So for one year, every Saturday, I went to Cooper Union. And I have to say, sitting in the studio, sitting at those desks, being surrounded by the work that was on the wall and the models, it was like being in a magical place. And I think at that point, I could see myself at Cooper Union. And so I'm pretty confident that I may not have had the confidence to go had it not been for this kind of immersion program. And it's a home examination you take, and it has all kinds of intriguing questions about abstraction and space. And I took it. And that year, not only did I get into Cooper Union for my high school, but five people from my school got in. So I had two other classmates in architecture who came to Cooper Union. Another was an African-American who was my best friend, Ben Walker, and Sarah Rose. We all went to Cooper Union and we all graduated from Cooper Union. So it was good because you had like also familiar faces and also you were very dedicated to be able to go there every single Saturday during a school year. That's what, six days of school (laughs) right there. Um, Not many people would be as dedicated, especially in high school. So you knew what you wanted to do right away. And you went you achieved it and you were able to get there with some of your friends and people from your high school. Yeah, I mean, I never thought about it as being particularly dedicated, but I was determined that I wanted to be an architect. And the fact that my friend was going along with me made it all more possible. But I think as young people, we often get obsessed over something and no one has to like, encourage us to do it. She's like, this is something that sparks an interest. And you know then that it's something sincere, that you could stick to it. But I look back on it and we talk a lot about youth immersion programs and architecture and exposing young people to architecture. It makes a difference. It makes a big difference. While I was planning director in Detroit, we did a youth-centric neighborhood framework plan where we really turned over the responsibility for framing what the future of the neighborhood would be that had a high number of young people in it, under 18, to young people. They ran the workshops, they did the interviews, they looked at the resources, they did the surveying. It was pretty amazing. It was an 18-month process, and they had one day which was full immersion, They would be pulled out of class and they would do part of the framework. And then they had to dedicate themselves to a Saturday morning. We paid them a stipend to do this work. It was a core group of 18. Do you know 
that by the end of that process, if you ask any of them what they wanted to be, they all said they wanted to be urban planners. And so it just speaks to this fact that exposure and the fact that you're problem solving, that they could identify it in terms of their life experience. And it was something that they actually knew. They knew a lot about their neighborhoods. They knew what was wrong. They had ideas about how they could be fixed. They were full of optimism. And then lo and behold, at the end of the process, they all wanted to be urban planners. I really like that because even when you're going to school for architecture or urban planning, you don't really get urban planning or architecture aspect until either you get an internship or you graduate. So to be able to have that experience and know what it is that your school and everything will come to, that is like very powerful for young people. I think so. I took that experience and I tried to continue it. So every year since I've been a planning commissioner in Chicago, we've hosted interns from Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. And they would bring five of their students and they would spend the semester here at the planning office. And it could not be more different than the academic curriculum that they are being taught. But they were so taken by how their design skills that they were learning could be applied to real world context. Many of them came out saying, I want to work in public interest design. I had no idea that architects were in planning offices. And that's part of that whole experience of getting exposure. Yes, the things you're learning in school are foundational and they're going to shape you, but they have application to real world context. And until you have those internships, until you get a chance to like play it out in a real world context, you have no idea. You don't know how the education is actually going to be applied. But that's one of the great things. It has broad application and you can kind of shape it towards the things that you care about. But now that we're talking about undergrad, I heard that in your undergrad, there was only a handful of students of color. How do you feel that your background and being a black man influenced the way you approach design? Well, this is true. At Cooper Union, which is a very small school, there were only 25 students in each class of architecture. So it was 125 students in the whole entire school. Five. There were only five people of color out of that 125. So it was really tough to relate. I think we understood that we were kind of special and were determined to get through it. We were treated like everyone else. So we were there based on our talent. And so we could measure up, but it still was otherworldly. And it was only one professor of color that I ever was exposed to. And it was difficult when you don't actually have anyone that looks like you or comes from your experiences. And so I carry that with me because in my later career, I've been able to do the hiring and I've been able to create the world as I think it should be. Hiring women, hiring people of color, Latino, Asian, African-American. And so when I would go to work today in Chicago, it's a very different group of people. There are people of color in leadership roles, same thing in Detroit. And I made a commitment to myself that I am going to build the profession as I think it should be so that no young person will ever feel like they never had a person in leadership role that didn't look like them, whether it was gender or race. And so these are things that you kind of carry with you as you are experiencing it. I've had people who've worked with me, people of color, who said they've never had an African-American as their boss, that this was the first time. And not only me, but then others. And it's just, again, it's trying to reshape a positive experience from experiences that you may have had in your own education that simply made you feel a little bit like you were an outsider. 
And so, you know, it was interesting because, you know, Cooper Union really was renowned for its abstraction and its curriculum around architecture as an artistic pursuit. And I thought that that was the only way that people practiced. And like many students, I was starting to feel a little burned out. And so people said, well, you really should travel the world. You should go to Italy. And so I, in my fourth year, decided to take a year off and go study at another school of architecture, Syracuse University, that had a program. They were starting a program in Florence, Italy. And it was really an important exposure that I received because there I realized that people use other sources for inspiration in architecture, that it's not just poetry. Sometimes it's the city itself is the example. And so for that year, I traveled all over Italy. I drew from experience. I studied the Renaissance and I studied city making. And when I got back, I really understood that there were a lot of different ways to be an architect and that you could actually draw inspiration from cities from the environment in which you live. And they were intensely urban environments and intensely pedestrian environments. It made such an impression on me. I came back and I did my thesis in the neighborhood that I grew up in. It was an enormous horizontal roof with a series of structural frames that held it up, suspended. And underneath were dozens and dozens of kiosks that I designed. And so it was meant to be something you get off of the train and you're under this big umbrella canopy in which was organized kind of randomly these very tectonic vendor stalls. And so I think about it because I still today create public spaces that seems to be a staple in the work that I brought to Chicago and in Detroit as well. And there it was embedded in my thesis decades ago. That's very cool. That it feels like the thesis was kind of like a foundation to how you design now. Yeah, and I think a thesis tend to operate that way. I mean, they really force you to think about what matters to you and to try to get to the core of your interests. And so it's a journey. You certainly never think that this is going to stay with you, but it's like a lot of moments that I've referenced where there's almost like there's an aha moment and you never know when and how it's going to come. I was remembering that when I had my first internship, my first year of college, it was in an African-American firm that had a part of a commission with IMPay to do the Jacob Javits Center and it was detailed with Steve Lewis, who was a friend of mine, to I.M. Pei's office, but his planning office. And as they were laying out this enormous convention center, the Jacob Javis Center in New York, our assignment was to look at the entire neighborhood and see what the impact of this was going to be on the entire neighborhood. And I'd never really thought about the entire neighborhood when making a building. And I think that early exposure and that positive exposure to an urban planner stayed with me. And then I found myself returning to that discipline. But that was really the first time that I understood that their buildings are not just site-specific, that they have implications for a larger geography. And I think once you start realizing zooming out a little and zooming out and zooming out, you start to understand that it's about more than just the building. It's about how the building interacts with a larger context, how it sets a context, how it becomes a catalyst for something else. You're starting to talk about more of like city planning. Mm -hmm. So after you did graduate, you ended up moving back to Italy. Can you tell us about your architecture experience over there? Sure. Well, when I graduated, I graduated right in the middle of a recession. And so there weren't a lot of really exciting jobs given my education and what I thought I wanted to do. 
So I remember I had a wonderful year in Italy. So I returned there. Um, and I returned there with the person who would become my wife, Giovanna Galfione, who is from Florence, and started to work with her. She's an architect on small projects that their firm, this little emerging firm had. I wasn't making much money, but I was in this incredibly vibrant professional context. And I must admit, um, I got a chance to see how Italians practice and they have very urban practices. And we were doing buildings that had incredible historic context that you had to respond to. And I lived in that classic 15 minute neighborhood where you can get to everything within a walk or a bike ride from the place where we lived. And I mean, what can I say? Italy is such an exquisite country and the quality of life is so high that you're like never gonna come back once you're there. And so two years turned into five, turned into 10. And I actually started teaching at Syracuse University where I was an architecture student. And so that gave me a chance to not only practice the practice side in this small practice, I also had a chance to teach from the Italian context. So I was the one now taking students on field trips across Italy. I was the one who was teaching them how to draw on site. I was the one coming up with assignments that started to try to understand how do you work with a context? How do you respond to those contexts? And it was an intensely urban laboratory for me. I also had the great fortune of meeting a number of architects who would mentor me. Two in particular were very important. One was Aldo Rossi, who was a famous Pritzker Prize winning architect who had a whole philosophy of architecture of the city. And with his small practice, we did two projects with him. And one of them actually was built. The other is Massimo Carmassi, who was an architect who was the planning director of the city of Pisa. And I taught with him. I invited him to teach with me at Syracuse University in Florence. And then he and I became good friends. And I watched this extremely talented architect use the planning office as a vehicle to reflect on the city, on urban typologies. And I must admit, that's another moment where I saw, oh, an architect can be planning director. And I stored that away. I didn't think of this as something that I wanted to do, but it so helped me realize that an architect could have something significant to say about urban design and urban planning. I was there for 10 years, and after a while, either you become like a citizen or you're a permanent expat. And <laughs> I was getting a little bit homesick and thinking, wow, I'm here while we might argue urban environments are going to hell in a basket. And shouldn't I be back in the States trying to help revive cities? And I accepted a teaching position at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that kind of gets me back to the States. But one important thing I've often thought about that experience in Italy is it was basically from 23 to 33. And if you think about those years, those are the formative years as a young professional. Those are the years where you really need a mentorship. And to be in a country where people couldn't care what color I was, they were looking at my talent and giving me opportunity as a result of my talent was absolutely liberating. So I never had this moment where I stepped out into the discipline, finding that it was unwelcoming to me. Mm-hmm. I missed that whole chapter. And when I came back to the United States, I was a fully formed architect. I was very confident in what I believed in. And somehow I do think that that has helped me in my journey because I hear so many stories of young designers of color who go out into the field. They see no one like them. 
they don't receive the mentorship that they need to really stick with the discipline. They persevere nevertheless, but somehow they just don't feel that they're getting the mentorship that they need and feeling welcome. Now, again, those who stick it out, it's worth it. And they're rewarded at a different point. But those transitions can be really difficult. And I was very fortunate to be able to spend the most important formative years of my career in a place where I was completely accepted. Oh, yeah, that's probably like probably the most hard experience you can have because of the fact that I've spoken to other people on this podcast as well, and some of them have told me about how their experiences that once they got out to the field, they were just confronted with some of the inequalities that they didn't realize. Yeah, so that's interesting because when I came back to the United States to establish my own practice together with my now wife, Giovanna, and two other partners in Charlottesville, Virginia, my desire was to work for minority communities. That's who I wanted to serve. And that's why projects like the Bayview Rural Village came. I was able to work in a community that was severely disinvested in, largely because I had the cushion uh, income of my teaching at the University of Virginia. So I was able to pick and choose the communities that I wanted to work with as an architect, and they were all minority communities. And I think that kind of gets back to the core. All I've ever wanted to do was to find a way to serve communities in need, communities of color. And you understand that the practice of architecture is not set up to serve that population, largely because what we do takes enormous capital resources to execute. So you have to get into a position where those resources are actually being directed in the communities that you want to serve. It's not a market-driven pursuit, and so much a practice is following wherever the market takes you, and the market is not taking you to disinvested areas. So part of why I think I've been attracted to public interest work is because resources are allocated, not evenly, but resources are allocated to communities. And if you can get in a position where you're the one that determines how those resources are being allocated and you're the one that's setting the bar as to what the goals are for specific projects, you can then give those communities access to the resources that they need. And I think that's in part why I found myself working and so attracted to the director of planning position in Detroit and the commissioner of planning and development in Chicago. So you were speaking on being interested in public interest design. So while you were in Charlottesville, you served as councilman and mayor. Can you describe your decision to get into politics? Yeah, no, that's an interesting one because I don't know if it was a decision as much as a necessity because when I came back from Italy, I took this position as an assistant professor at University of Virginia, I moved into an African-American neighborhood on the south side of the tracks. Beautiful neighborhood, but very disenfranchised and had not seen public investment for a very long time. So what did I do? I immediately started organizing my neighbors to try to talk about how we could make improvements to our neighborhood. It was called the Ridge Street. I founded a neighborhood association and I became the president of the neighborhood association. (laughs) And so all of a sudden it was very interesting because I would go to city council as a citizen, you give a testimony, you make observations, but you're really only representing yourself. When I went as the president of a neighborhood association, well, I actually represented hundreds of people. And so I found that my voice had a lot more weight as a result of that. And so I advocated for the preservation of these neighborhoods. I started getting resources directed to that neighborhood. And then other neighborhoods in Charlottesville started taking note and they asked me to come and do workshops in their neighborhood. And before I knew it, 
people were saying, you should run for city council. And I was like, <laughs> I'm a professor of architecture. And I was working so hard in terms of this public interest advocacy that talked to my wife and she said, you know, you're working so hard at this, you might as well run for city council. And so three years after I arrived in Charlottesville, Virginia, I announced my candidacy to run for city council. And I ran as an architect who had a vision a physical vision for how the city could grow and prosper and how we could equitably advance Charlottesville, Virginia. To my surprise, I won by a landslide uh, <laughs> and that began my political career. And so it lasted for eight years. I took on some really big challenges that were challenges that the city was struggling with. One was the one I remember Vividly there too, one was the issue of reversion. There was a popular grassroots effort to try to get Charlottesville, which was shrinking in terms of its population, to give up its charter as a city and to revert to being a town that would allow it to annex all of the suburban surrounds. And I just remember thinking, like, why would you annex everything to grow your tax base, why wouldn't you just grow more densely and grow your tax base? So I rejected that premise and I started talking to people about could we grow more densely within our footprint? And it led to a high density series of studies along commercial corridors that I thought could be more dense and more mixed use. And it ultimately led to the city adopting a new plan for city growth. And the other was a highway, a four-lane divided highway that was going to cut through a major public park. And it was two miles long. It was a straight shot. And it was going straight to the heart of Charlottesville and right through the center and coming out in the neighborhood that I lived in. I thought this was the most absurd thing, and I started organizing to fight it. And not only to fight it, because I couldn't kill it because it was a Department of Transportation project and they last forever, but what I was able to do was I thought we could redesign it and we could downgrade it from a four-lane divided to a two-lane parkway. And so that was the fight. It took me all of my time on council to completely redirect this project and it eventually got built, and it's probably one of the first parkways that Virginia has actually executed in decades, and it's called the Meadow Creek Parkway. It was renamed the John Warner Parkway. But it was an interesting lesson for me because I saw that designers could offer solutions to political questions. And we're trained to know that there are different answers to a question, it's not a black or white yes or no. And so our ability, some people would say you're able to compromise. The mean is you can find a third way. And that has always been one of my strengths is I'm not an absolutist. I'm not like, no, this can't happen. This can happen, but it can be better. And that's what the Meadow Creek Parkway is. And that's what so many political questions require a compromise. You went into politics with the hopes to like help the community that you were living in. It just sounds interesting because I feel like it came from like where you're just like, oh, I want to help this community. Wow, look at me, I'm the councilman of the city. Right. So, and you did a lot to impact the city, especially with like the highway, even though that took a very long time to do. Right. Also, that goes back to your determination and all the initiatives you have, which is very important for the roles you have done. That's a very good point. I mean, for me, the takeaway is if you're able and willing to serve the immediate community you are around, you will inevitably be extremely appreciated. That you can take something that's a local issue and inherently it has implications for much larger community. So as I said, I didn't aspire to be a city councilor or a mayor. 
I aspire to be uh, president of a neighborhood association, any of us could be president of our neighborhood association and look at what it led to. And so if people were trying to say, well, how can I get into politics? Maybe you should start by volunteering on a campaign of somebody who's running for state senator or running for city council. Maybe you can offer them a platform in the built environment that they might not be thinking about. I think that's how you do it. I mean, it's fiercely, fiercely local. And again, local repeats itself multiple times and then it becomes, again, citywide. So I think it's an interesting way of framing it. So when you're volunteering those small things that you think to do using your craft, they lead to other opportunities. I would also like to add that you also gave the people there a voice. Because like you said earlier, that once you became president of neighborhood, mm -hmm. you were representing people and you were giving them a voice to be able to say things that they could never say if it weren't for you. I mean, that is correct. I mean, we're standing outside of yourself. You're not just representing a client. You're representing your neighbors, other residents. And you are giving voice to things that they are imagining that they may be articulating. It's almost like they need a translator. And architecture gives you something. A lot of times people's desires, hopes, and dreams are all wrapped up in the built and natural environment, but that's not how they talk about them. And as an architect, I found that I could interpret what they were aspiring to do. And going from your experiences in Charlottesville, you later were the director for the National Endowment of the Arts and helped lead the Mayor's Institute on Design. How did you bring your design backgrounds into these positions? Well, the National Endowment for the Arts is the federal agency that funds all of the arts and architecture and the built and natural environment are one of the arts. So they actually have a director that oversees giving out grants to support that. And at the same time, they have these flagship programs called the Mayor's Institute on City Design, where they actually train political leaders in the art of city making. So it was kind of like a natural fit, meaning I was a former mayor and here I was an architect. And so I could speak to both sides. I could understand some of the demands and aspirations of a political leader, but I also knew how to translate those into real actionable items from the design perspective. And so for three years that I was the design director, every six weeks, I was charged to bring together seven mayors and find seven designers from across the country to go into executive session and help these mayors try to understand the power of design. And they would bring a case study along with them from their community. We would roll up our sleeves and we would try to give them the words and the tools they needed to solve that. And I must admit, it was just a masterclass in problem solving of folks who did not necessarily have an architectural vocabulary. And then I got a chance to travel the country and see all of these cities. So I saw dozens and dozens of American cities that were having a lot of the same issues, whether it was downtown or riverfront or a disinvested neighborhood. And so it became, as I said, a real education on how to help mayors solve real problems. At the same time, I also understood the impact that design had because I was able to give out grants. I gave out grants to community design centers. I gave out grants to design nonprofits. I gave out grants for competitions. And that also helped me understand the impact that design could have. Your resources, a lot of these communities needed resources. They needed resources to rethink processes and to raise the bar. And so excellence became a part of the mantra of my work. The National Endowment for the Arts represents excellence in the arts. And 
things that matter are impact, your ability to have a large impact, not just a small impact. And so I think that experience prepared me for working at a citywide level. And I don't think there was a problem that was presented to me in Detroit or Chicago that I did not see in one of these case studies that Mayors brought to me in the Mayors Institute. So going from the Mayors Institute, how did you get to New Orleans? <laughs> That's a great question. Actually, one of the Mayors Institutes that I was asked to assemble was post-Katrina in New Orleans. And the Mayors Institute was assembling a group of professionals from around the country to help seven mayors that were impacted by Katrina help them rethink their environment. And so New Orleans, and then we had Biloxi and a number of the other mayors there. And I remember because we were touring with Mayor Nagan, who was the mayor when Katrina happened, and we were going to the Lower Ninth Ward. The level of devastation I had never seen. None of us had ever seen anything like this before. And so we worked on that, but it left a really strong impression. And then when Ken Schwartz, who was the chair at the University of Virginia, who hired me, he went down to New Orleans and he became the dean of the School of Architecture at Tulane. And I don't know, for a couple of years into his tenure, he called me, he said, I have a community design center called the Tulane City Center and I'd love you to lead it. And I would love to create a position to be the associate dean for community engagement, to help bridge the resources of the university to the community that was still rebuilding itself all those years later. And I accepted. And so here, I had an opportunity to lead a small community design center. We were seven staff, but we worked exclusively with nonprofit groups across New Orleans on their small community-based projects, park pavilion, rehabilitation of a store, a streetscape, mostly kind of planning, but also some design and build efforts. And I started working with cultural institutions that traditionally were hard to reach, like the Mardi Gras Indians or there's a whole intense music scene there, a lot of music clubs that didn't have access to designers. And my job was to bring the talent of the School of Architecture to bear and to serve. And it was also a way to bring students out of the classroom and put them into the community as a laboratory to exercise their design ideas. And it was an incredibly rewarding period a lot of engagement with communities, meeting them where they were. And we moved the center off of campus into a neighborhood of New Orleans, which was the first time the center physically moved out and became a resource for students, resource for communities, but it was embedded in the community. And so I was there in New Orleans and I was loving it because I was both teaching and bridging between the university and the community. When I got this call from someone who had been to one of the mayor's institutes and said that the mayor of Detroit was looking for a planning director. And I actually was surprised because I was primarily an academic teaching and I had never been a planning director before. And I remember going there and I knew a little bit about Detroit because I had spent a year as a fellow at Harvard and one of the other fellows was from Detroit, Dan Patera. So we were talking a lot about Detroit. I was asked to be a visiting critic at Harvard and I taught a design studio and the subject of the studio was Detroit. So I knew Detroit, and I knew it was a really challenging assignment. I had just gone through the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history. And so the question was, like, what could an architect do to rethink Detroit? And I went and I interviewed with Mayor Duggan, 
and he says, you're my guy. I want someone who is a visionary, but I want someone who's grounded. He says, I want someone who knows what it's like to walk in my shoes. And so here it was, that time as a mayor turned out to be the thing that got me the job because this mayor felt that I understood fundamentally what it means to not just to plan, uh, but to implement a vision. I do feel like understanding the position of a mayor mm -hmm. and being the voice for the people there. And I feel like that when they had you, they saw that you spoke for the community and the people. And I honestly, I admire the people of Detroit for choosing you because of the fact that they wanted someone to represent the people mm -hmm. and represent a voice for the people. So I think that that's also very cool. It's also very cool that they just called you out of nowhere and I said, know. hey, here's a job. I know. And it's so funny <laughs> because I actually thought, do they know that I'm not trained as a planner? I said, when is somebody going to say, you know, he's an architect? Well, the thing I didn't know is that most planning directors are not from planning and they're not from design. They're like real estate attorneys, they're developers, they're zoning experts, but they aren't physical planners. So I had to check a few people. I said, you know, I got this call to be a planning director. I'm, I'm not a planner. And they said that they know that you're not. They're choosing you because of the way you approach problems in your experience you'll be fine. And so I went to this, I, you know, I took on this extraordinary task. I must admit it was one of the biggest adaptive challenges I've ever seen because Detroit at its peak had 1.8 million people. And today it has 680,000 people. And so when, what happens to a community that loses 1.2 million people and you inherit all of that land, all of the blight, the churches, the schools, the houses, all kind of there falling apart. And yet there were 680,000 people. It's the largest majority minority community in America, meaning 80% African-American, 10% Latino, wow. and 10% white. And so New Orleans was a majority African-American city, so I, I knew what it was like to work with people of color. Detroit took it to a whole nother level, and these were the people who decided to stay. They stuck it out with the city, and so I was at their service, but I had to introduce them to things that were very non-traditional because you, you can't just say, well, we'll build new housing when you have tens of thousands of vacant houses and you can't talk about growth when you, your population is shrinking. So the question was, how do you work with these complex urban dynamics and bring a level of invention and bring the right tools? And that's partly what I did. I mean, I constructed a department from scratch, hired 40 people, people of color, architects, landscape architects. My first hire was a landscape architect, not a planner, and used the city as a living laboratory for reinvention. And I'm confident that that notion of the city as a laboratory goes all the way back to Italy, goes through Charlottesville and New Orleans, this notion that the city is the place for us to reinvent what a neighborhood is. And so you can imagine I was really having a phenomenal time working on this project of the comeback of Detroit. And then I got the call from Chicago. <laughs> and people said this amazing woman has been elected mayor of the city on a reform platform. And her core of her belief is equitable development for the south and west side. And would you consider being the commissioner of planning and development of the city of Chicago? And next thing I know, I was uh, coming to Chicago. And it was a very bold choice by Mayor Lightfoot to choose a commissioner who was not from Chicago. It had never happened before. But I think she inherently is an outsider herself. She is a reformer. And so the idea of breaking up 
the status quo and bringing someone who would have fresh ideas, who could actually work in diverse communities was central to her agenda for her administration. And going from Detroit to Chicago, you championed the Invest Southwest initiative. What impacts do you believe good design can have on revitalizing communities in Chicago? I had never lived in a city with the inequities that I've seen between black and white, rich and poor, south side versus north side and west. And so I understood that she wanted to try to rebalance how investments were being made in areas that had been written off on the south and west side, just starved of any investment because the norm was just to follow the market. And so I had a team here of 160 professionals and they were all working on the downtown. And so my thought was we have to redistribute the resources and the first resource is the human resource of urban planners and designers. And so I created seven regions across the city so that each region had a group of design professionals who were working exclusively on them. And I built that team to about 40 planners and architects and landscape architects. And so for the first time, Chicago had professionals working in every square mile of the city. So that was the first thing, to try to build that. And their job was to be a liaison with the community, with the aldermen, with stakeholders, and bring the full impact of design and planning to those neighborhoods. The mayor had an idea that she wanted to marshal significant investments across multiple city departments, all directed to the south and west side. And that's what I was handed as an assignment. And I worked with our staff to talk about the things that would potentially be successful, like locating development near transit, reimagining the neighborhood main streets, these commercial corridors that have since been disinvested in, trying to animate the pedestrian life on those corridors so that effectively people who live on the south and west side could walk within 15 minutes from their home to the full services, those neighborhood amenities that we all know, and to build up the density on those corridors so that the residential supported the retail businesses. And we chose 10 community areas of Chicago. We marshaled $750 million from multiple departments to all focus on this assignment and to create opportunities for mixed-use developments that would be led by developers of color, designed by architects and design professionals of color, fueled by local businesses that would anchor these developments. And we must have issued 14 of these requests for proposals. In the end, it generated about $500 million of development and these are mixed-use buildings located on these main corridors. And then the Department of Transportation reimagined the streetscapes to try to make more pedestrian-oriented shopping streets. And then we gave grants to entrepreneurs to design new business ideas that would feed into the vacant storefronts. And to do that with the consent of residents who we were following their lead in terms of where to start, what buildings needed to be rehabbed, what kinds of amenities they wanted. And we put all of that into the request for proposals and we got an amazing response. And I think a whole new generation of city builders are in the process of executing that vision. And it's gonna take some years to get done, but we can already see the outcomes of the projects that are under construction and they're going to be beautiful. They're obviously, they're going to be award-winning and they are going to be a point of reference to the private sector that this is a place where you can make an incredible investment and also do good at the same time. Going back to what you said earlier, how you were like the first commissioner who mm -hmm. was from outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Given what you just said, it kind of makes me think about the fact that 
they chose you because of the fact that you had experiences in other cities and you were able to implement those experiences here in Chicago. It wasn't just like you and the mayor who were designing Chicago. It was people themselves, architects, also going into these neighborhoods, listening to people. The people of Chicago were able to build their own city. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, in the end, designers have a degree of power, right? They have the ability to help visualize, you know, a vision of a place, a space, and to engage residents in that process of visioning. It is sharing that power. And I think I realized that in my political experience, that in order to get people to buy into something new, they have to understand it. They have to take ownership of it. They have to co-author it. You cannot force your vision on someone. You can't force people to follow you. They have to feel a sense of ownership and they have to share in that vision. And so I developed after years and years of hearing ordinary people express themselves, express their vision for their community, I developed a sense of respect for them and their embedded knowledge as people who have lived, invested, and loved their communities. People can figure out that you're sincere, that you actually believe that I have something to give and they have something to say and that I'm going to respect it. It takes time, it takes frequency. They have to see you a lot and understand that you're there for them. And I'm confident that my experience in politics helped me fine tune that skill. These are not people who are paying me as a client, pays an architect. These are people who are looking to you. Arguably, they put you there, they voted for you, and they're entrusting in you the guidance of their city. And in turn, you learn to listen and you learn to respect their thoughts. And you also understand that in order to get them to move to a place where they are more willing to accept something um, more innovative, that they have to understand it. And so that involves like new learning, that involves them changing where they are and them understanding how what you might be presenting to them helps to kind of embody or it embodies what their goals and aspirations are. So it transfers a lot of that to just ordinary people. But at no time did I ever give up the set of disciplinary skills that I learned in architecture. And we all do it, right? We juggle the structure and the materials and the space and the context. We're constantly trying to hold all these things into some kind of balance. And it is a skill that you learn through your education. And it's a skill that you can imagine how that gets transferred to all of these different issues that are operating or pressing down on a particular problem that a community is trying to solve. But it's a pretty incredible superpower that you develop. I love what architecture and planning and landscape architecture can do just to make people's lives so much better. Yeah, I feel like I'm starting to understand the impacts buildings and even in our conversation last time with Ernie, I was able to understand how landscape impacts communities, how urban planning impacts communities, how politics, I never knew politics and architecture were so tied together. So I'm starting to understand how even interior design, urban planning, landscape design, and just like regular like architecture all impacts people, how they live. You know, I had an interesting example it was this thing called Pop Courts, Public Open Plazas. And the first one that we executed was in Austin on a vacant lot on Chicago Avenue. And I was reflecting on how many people it took to produce this from the politician. I mean, first of all, it took Mayor Lightfoot to said, we're going to invest in these disinvested corridors. It took architects who, coming out of COVID, and I had raised a challenge that we're mandating that people serve people outdoors, but where do you gather on a typical neighborhood 
corridor that has narrow sidewalks and no places to set up tables. So we said, well, could we turn one of these vacant lots into a place where people could gather? And architects who were like signed up to volunteer to try to reimagine these spaces, in this particular case, Lamar Johnson Collaborative. But then we had a local organization, the Westside Health Authority, who said, we try to take care of the Chicago Avenue. We'll be the managers of that space. And we want to bring artists and joy into the space. So they were connected to a group of artists called Paint the City, who were going around painting the plywood board ups from the civil unrest during COVID. And they painted a mural with so many iconic African-American leaders. The architects determined that there was a place here for sculpture, that this wall would be painted. And in the end, we created an amazing public space full of color, it's dynamic, and it has won easily 10 national awards. This one little space has spawned all kinds of economic development. There's a new cafe that's opening next door. There was another establishment that came across the street. An apartment building is being renovated across from it. And you go to this space and it's like nothing that community has ever seen. And all it is is paint and astroturf and lighting and sculpture. And it changes people's perception of their neighborhood and themselves in that neighborhood. And I think that's kind of the power of what we do. But there were all of these different players had to be assembled and coordinated. And that was part of the work that the architect does. And so I've been focusing on it because I thought, how does such a small intervention win so many national awards? And how important was it that an architect was in a place to help direct the resources there and the community was ready to receive it and had the connections with the artist community. But this is kind of what it takes. It takes everyone pitching in and bringing their particular perspective and resource to the table to make a transformational change. The end of it is we did that one plaza and then the mayor said, could we do more? And now we've done 10 of these plazas in 10 different communities, all with the same strategy, very, very much place-based, each one different from the other. But the common thread is that you had a public entity that understood that the community deserved beautiful spaces and that those spaces could be the catalyst for a revival and a restoration of those communities. So for me, it all comes full circle when I think about the community I grew up in and how important it is to create places where people feel safe and people feel welcome and people are surrounded by beauty. Given all the philosophy you have on Mm. urban planning, what words would you give to future Mm. designers? Well, there's a part of me that feels like follow your passion. The ideas that you have that you're formulating ideas that could carry you forward for many, many years. I hope you will lend your services, your talents to the places that need you most, that you'll go somewhere and offer your skills to people who traditionally don't have access to it. And that's the hard part because you have to find entities that do the work and serve the people that you desire to serve. And you don't have to compromise and serve population or constituency that really doesn't need your skills. There are lots of people who are gonna do that, but there are a lot more opportunities out there if you're willing to go to a place that doesn't have access to talent like you've assembled. So that's my advice. You see fire you run towards the fire. (laughs) You want to go to a place where nobody else wants to go. That's where you belong. And feel comfortable in challenging the status quo and genuinely helping people use design in a strategic way. Opportunities are enormous. They're endless. And it's going to require you to perhaps make some sacrifices at some point. 
might be financial sacrifices or might be location sacrifice. The good news is there's a lot more focus now on the public interests in design that did not exist decades ago. So you actually have options. So there are different ways to serve a broader constituency. And I would just encourage you to feel comfortable in pursuing it. Thank you for those words. Yeah. Before we end the conversation, I would just like to ask you one more question. Sure. What are your future plans? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I want to continue doing what I've had the privilege of doing, and that is serving non-traditional communities that could use the perspective that I bring. In the end, I've always wanted to work in neighborhoods in need, uh, neighborhoods of color, and that's the work that I hope to continue to do in the future. So cut away all the other stuff and just work on communities that need to be uplifted, that need uh, beauty, that no one has seen them, and bring the resources and experience that I have to them. And I want to do it here in Chicago, and I want to do it nationally. So that's, that's what I'll be doing. Well, I hope you are able to accomplish <laughs> your future plans. I feel like you've done so much for the community, so I hope that you also are able to continue doing more for the people you love. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having this conversation with me. I was able to learn so much, and I'm pretty sure most of the people listening to this right now are able to learn a lot as well. I want to thank everyone for listening. We release our episodes monthly. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthesurface underscore nomasiat. I want to thank our producer, Caleb Kwok, the Nomas IIT team, and WIIT for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Surface featuring Maurice Cox. Until next time, goodbye.